Good afternoon. It's Wednesday, the 9th of June, 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. Your host today, Mike Robinson, myself, Brian Gerrish. Um, well, this is the first post-Vimeo live stream, so hopefully everybody will be able to watch it successfully. Well, the um, chief executive name I can't remember, lovely young lady, but um, a global leader with yes. the World Economic Forum. So presumably we trod on some toes. Well, where do we start today? We'd just like to remind people that there's a spread of a uniform. We're calling it the uh, vaccine fascists in black. Uh, of course, on Monday, we put up Matt Hancock. He was looking particularly attractive here with his interesting uh, salute. And uh, let's follow that with a reminder that uh, the same black has come in for uh, Boris Johnson. He likes to be seen in his uh, all-encompassing uh, black face mask. And you've got a few more, Mike, that you've spotted. Uh, yes, uh, that's of course, the G7 starting on Friday. But these are the G7 Sherpas. Uh, I take it you've heard that term before with respect to international... Bag carriers. Yes, yes, bag carriers. So these are the G7 Sherpas. These are the personal representatives of the G7 world leaders, and they have arrived in Cornwall for the head of the G7 summit uh, in order to make preparations. Um, so, of course, G7 is starting on Friday. That is uh, uh, leaders from UK, Canada, France, Germany, Italy, Japan, United States uh, coming together for the uh, summit. And what are they talking about? Well, vaccination, vaccine passports, uh, and the Green New Deal, of course, are the main talking points. Uh, and, uh, well, data collection and surveillance is certainly part of this. A massive uh, security operation in place, a thousand police staying in a cruise ship docked at Falmouth uh, and 5,000 more uh, in various other places, including in a bunch of what they describe as RVs, uh, which are currently parked at, uh, uh, on, uh, which RAF base was it? Uh, so so near Newquay. So uh, so preparations uh, fully uh, on the boil. But uh, what kind of impact is it having on the uh, on the local community? Well, this for a start, uh, Falmouth businesses have to close for sixteen days, according to Cornwall Live. Uh, they are going to be compensated, uh, Cornwall Live claims, uh, but uh, the businesses have to close. And if apparently, if any business that has to close hasn't heard anything by now about compensation, they have to contact the Foreign and Commonwealth Office immediately. I, I was fascinated by this um, as to why these businesses had to close. Is it because the, uh, the, the coronavirus is loitering around those businesses in Falmouth? No, it's nothing is, to do with corona at all. It is, it is purely to do with the security operation because the G7 is taking place in three locations uh, and one of them is the National Maritime Museum in Falmouth and so they've got to shut the entire town down. But, but that, that tourist attraction has been open, I believe, up until now. So... Well, I'm sure it's getting uh, a, a, full, a full clean. clean yes. Yeah. Yes. Uh, <laughs> yeah. yeah. So, well, so, there's more to come. Yes. Uh, but uh, don't worry. Uh, the, the fact that uh, Cornwall is having to lock down and uh, effectively be, become prisoners even more than uh, uh, during coronavirus. Uh, here is a, a post from Facebook. It's been revealed today that the policing bill alone for uh, G7 summit will be £70 million. Now, it's not clear from the Guardian article that's linked here, uh, whether that is just for the policing aspect of this or whether this includes the uh, Ministry of Defence part of it as well, but we'll come on to that in one second. Um, and uh, there was a photograph went with this particular uh, 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 Facebook post. So you've got uh, big 
concrete bollards, uh, big concrete blocks holding up uh, fencing along the front of people's homes. Now, my understanding is that the fences were supposed to be put uh, along the back of people's homes. Um, but uh, unfortunately, the organizers didn't want the VIPs to see the fences, so they decided to put the fences in front of people's homes instead. Yes. <laughs> uh, well, anyway. Yeah, okay, Mike. So there is an economic cost. There's also this cost. But then there's the military cost as well, because, look, one of the uh, policy areas that, that we've been watching very carefully over the last couple of years has been this drive to uh, merge policing functions, civilian functions with military functions. So it's a militarization of, of policing and other institutions. Um, so the Ministry of Defence is stepping in to assist um, with the security operation. And well, a couple of tweets here uh, from various people. Um, we've got uh, Matt on the left here. I think the Americans have arrived and uh, we've got a couple of um, Osprey uh, sort of semi-helicopters there sitting on the on the ground at St. Michael's Mount. Uh, and on the right-hand side, a load from Penzance, looks like the US military are patrolling the area ahead of the weekend's G7 summit. They're, Here's two of the three Osprey hybrid helicopter planes uh, that have just been flying to St. Michael's Mount. So uh, that's going on. But we've also got uh, other material uh, being installed, uh, a mobile radar installation of some kind here. So the, the Ministry of Defence are providing a range of capabilities, including naval vessels, aircraft, planning staff, logistics support facilities and explosive ordnance disposal teams. Uh, the armed forces, according to the Ministry of Defence, have vast experience in supporting events of this nature and will help the local police force to maintain security for the many visitors to the area and the local communities. Um, and at the request of Devon Cornwall Police, they say defense is, the Ministry of Defence is providing explosive search dogs and handlers who will be under police command. Uh, explosive ordnance disposal teams uh, are on standby as they normally are. Uh, and they will be making available RNAS called Rose and RAF St Morgan. Uh, and uh, they will also help the police to secure and maintain security for the duration of, of the summit by providing air defence capabilities. So I'm not sure whether this particular mobile radar installation is somehow linked to some kind of uh, air defence uh, capability. But uh, thanks to, to Patrick for sending that to me because he was given that by, I believe, a fisherman. All right. Um, I, I wonder, looking at that second time, might whether that actually might be a, um, a site for launching drones. I wonder whether that white strip is is a little. Well, uh, well, I don't know, but the the uh, the, main, the yeah. mainstream media had a different image of that installation, and they did describe right. it as a, as so a mobile radar I, installation. I'd love to see the documentation as as to what the risk assessment is, but we've got enough troops and police in Cornwall to seal it off and defend it, presumably, against most of the Russian army. Whether Putin is going to come across and grab the leaders from Cornwall, have an ice cream at the same time? Well, they're certainly expecting something because uh, I should mention that the it is, in fact, uh, the commander uh, literal strike group that's sort of uh, managing this or commanding this. Uh, and, uh, of course, this is formerly uh, commander amphibious task group. So I'm not sure whether they're going to, they're planning to do some kind of... Uh, uh, you know, Normandy landing type exercise on the beach at uh, Carbis Bay. But anyway, uh, look, the question is, well, what do we think it might happen to homeless people while uh, all these illustrious right. leaders Oops. are going to be there? <laughs> uh, and the answer is, well, they're being moved out of the hotels and, and the temporary accommodation that they uh, are currently in. So this is uh, 
uh, Disc UK, which is a charity helping homeless people in uh, Cornwall. And they released a press release this morning, it was picked up by various uh, mainstream media, uh, basically saying that people that had been living in hotel rooms uh, under short-term sort of rolling yeah. contracts uh, have been told to leave. Now, Cornwall uh, Council is claiming that this is because of seasonal issues, that it's because of the amount of tourism that's going on. Uh, but uh, this uh, um, particular charity is uh, saying absolute nonsense to that one. I'll just add uh, to that, Mike, that uh, a week ago I was told by an extremely nice lady working with homeless people in a particular big city uh, that they were in a very bad position because all of the government money that had been provided at the start of the COVID nonsense to get homeless people off the streets, uh, they'd use that money to completely remove homeless people from the streets in that particular city and they were in good accommodation and the city was very pleased with that well of course the government has now withdrawn that funding and the city was left with a pretty unpleasant task of saying to the homeless people we're going to have to throw you out because we can't afford to keep this accommodation going mm. so it appears if you're homeless you can just be kicked from pillar to post whether the government's got a, a financial problem for that or the military is in with the police to protect the world leaders uh, indeed but uh, here is the world leader of course uh, president biden uh, he was tweeting this out yesterday Tomorrow I depart for Europe on the first foreign travel of my presidency. The trip is about realizing America's renewed commitment to her allies and demonstrating that democracies can both meet the challenges and deter the threats of this new age. Did you know we were in a new age? I think I did. We I think we were, we're in the golden age is where we are. We can have a discussion about what the mindset of these people is, but it's pretty dark. Yes. Uh, so anyway, what's he up to? Well, he's arriving in the UK today. Uh, tomorrow he meets uh, Boris. Uh, and of course, that's all about renewing the special relationship. Uh, then he's taking part in the G7, of course, from Friday until Sunday. But the, uh, after the G7 ends on Sunday uh, afternoon, he heads up to meet the Queen. Uh, and uh, then on Monday and Tuesday, he'll be in Brussels at the NATO summit. And then in Switzerland uh, on Wednesday, Brian, to meet uh, Vladimir Putin. So uh, I can't imagine what might come out of that. Well, possibly this, um, which uh, was sent to us. Now, I've only just been able to have a quick look at this uh, particular article here in the Global Times, but uh, the, the nub of this is being quite w widely reported now. But basically, Putin said publicly that as far as he's concerned, he thinks that the USA is walking the Soviet Union's path and it's doing it with great confidence. Now, he isn't being nice here. What he's actually saying is that if he takes a look at America, what he sees is an empire that is now starting to collapse because internally uh, the country's no longer working. There's huge fractiousness. America's strutting the world stage but not doing a very good job of being the world policeman. And, and Putin says, when I look at the conditions in the uh, USA at the moment, the fact that the government does not seem to be capable of governing the USA. Uh, he's effectively saying he predicts that the United States is going to collapse. And um, there's a lot to be said for that analysis when we look at Biden's administration and where they're going. I don't think it's just the United States in, that's in that position either. But anyway, coming back to, uh, uh, to Cornwall then, uh, everybody will be glad to know, including, I'm sure, all the homeless people that have been thrown out of their accommodation, uh, that Boris has decided to give Cornwall some money. Uh, and of course, uh, 
money going into Cornwall has had lots of success in the past, hasn't it, Brian? Maybe you'll have something to say about that. Well, the 321 Objective 1 funding uh, disappeared, That's literally. Uh, 321 million pounds. Yeah, three, yes. three, well, 300, sorry, 320 million pounds uh, disappeared, never to be seen again. And uh, UK column many years ago put out a challenge that if anybody could show us the accounts for that money, uh, we would be extremely grateful, but I don't think anybody has ever seen the full audited account. So money just uh, disappears like water. Indeed. So let's see what Boris had to say. As the eyes of the world look to Cornwall this week, not only will they see an area of outstanding beauty, they will witness a region that is innovative, exciting and looking firmly towards a bright future. Uh, as the world builds back better from coronavirus, Cornwall will lead the way. So how's it going to lead the way? Well, they've announced some town deals for Penzance and Ives in Camborne uh, worth over £65 million, and that's going to find, fund projects at the heart of communities in some of Cornwall's most deprived areas. Uh, that's going to include creating a new network of foot and cycle paths across Camborne, Penzance, and from St Ives to St Earth. Uh, community hubs, including theatres, sports clubs, uh, and uh, historic buildings are going to be restored. Um, so this is all good stuff. They're going to sustain businesses by shutting them down for 16 days, but they're going to sustain them. Uh, and uh, they're going to sustain businesses and commercial sectors most badly, badly hit by coronavirus. Uh, and they're going to create new business hubs in the towns. Uh, and these are going to create long-term sustainable jobs. Um, and then they're going to reverse the decline in biodiversity by turning, a, what is it, 21,000 hectares of land, probably mostly farmland, uh, into nature conserves and uh, woodlands. So it's all very good stuff, Brian, money well spent. Well, don't forget Prince Charles helping to bring in supermarkets uh, to Truro. That was a big popular measure down in Cornwall. Uh, but all of the fishing industry absolutely destroyed, farming destroyed. Um, a lot of the uh, temporary jobs that uh, the young people in Cornwall depended on, those have all been destroyed. So it's, it's basically an area wrecked by uh, both the Conservative and Labour government. Uh, and mentioning Labour, probably time to bring Gordon Brown onto our screens. And uh, here he is. Now, we're going back a bit here because this is 2014, and a much younger Gordon Brown was calling for Scotland to unite towards a common purpose. And I think this is a subject that we need to bring people's attention, uh, bring back to people's attention. Um, so there was Gordon speaking out. And uh, we've also got this one that we found where Gordon was talking to the Labour Spring Conference in March 2008. And we have a little bit of video clip here. And it's fascinating to uh, listen to what he was saying back then. So I'm only standing here today because a previous generation fought for education for all demanded an NHS for all, dared to stand up for a common purpose, opportunity for all, and in their generation unleashed the power of opportunity to change lives. So generations don't just have fashions and soundtracks and icons. The generations that history remembers have ideals that inspire them to action. They have dreams that drive them forward. And people don't just write great new chapters of history if they stand frozen or fearful in time and place. They write great chapters of history when they come together in common purpose, emboldened by hope. 
And now it is our turn, the turn of our generation. And what will we be remembered for? I want our children and their children to say that in the first decades of the 21st century, there lived a generation that built a Britain where the talent you had mattered more than the titles you held. Imagine if together we built a Britain where what counts is not how high up you start, but how high you can reach. Imagine if together we can build a Britain where every parent of every child born today can watch them as they sleep and dare to believe that nothing is beyond them realizing their potential. Imagine if together we create a Britain where for all of us, the future is not a fate we can't escape, but a common purpose we create together. This Britain of security and opportunity for all is within our grasp. So with the courage of our convictions, with pride in our common purpose, let us go out with confidence. Let us go out with confidence to meet the world to come. Let us embrace this new age of ambition. Let us build the Britain of our dreams. Well, let us build the Britain of our dreams. Um, some people have said in our chat box, the man is waffling, he's full of bullshit. Um, perhaps it was neither of those two things. Perhaps he was talking about a gen an agenda, a common purpose, which he absolutely knew was coming and he knew the form of that agenda, which would be the move towards a world government system with people like Gordon Brown in control. Well, let's jump forward to 2021 and see what Gordon Brown has to say about uh, the G7. And on Friday at the G7, we will decide effectively who lives and who dies, who is to be vaccinated and is therefore safe, and who is not to be vaccinated and therefore is at risk. We will decide effectively who lives and who dies. And on Friday at the G7, we will decide effectively who lives and who dies, who is to be vaccinated. Uh, well, that couldn't be plainer because, of course, this man absolutely believes what he says. He believes that a group of world leaders protected by a massive amount of police and army and uh, Navy and presumably some Air Force uh, troops are going to decide the fate of the world and they're going to push forward a vaccine policy for uh, the world's population. That's um, what Boris Johnson has been speaking about. And of course, this is a, this is a vaccine or these are vaccines which are not uh, fully tested. They are still experimental, uh, but these are going to be pushed out across the world. And Gordon Brown is very confident that people like himself, common purpose, chosen future leaders, will be the people making that decision. Mm. So I'll allow our viewers and listeners to think about what's really being said there, but we think something deeply sinister is unfolding in the G7 talks. Just remind people that if you go to cpexposed.com website, uh, you can find some of the early documentation where we were warning about this. And uh, on screen at the moment, we've got information about the Common Purpose Project in Washington, DC. And if you research, you will find around that time frame, 2008, 2009, uh, Gordon Brown widely quoting Common Purpose, but also uh, Obama was quoting the same Common Purpose agenda uh, from the other side of the pond. Uh, I've got another one uh, here. 
Um, this is based on an article that was actually sent into the wheat and tares PDF. If we bring this up on screen, it was a very simple little article that had been produced, but it was quite informative. It says our investigative journey commences with the examination of a 1953 debate from the House of Lords on the subject of the World Federation. The debate commenced that in the opinion of this House, it should be a fundamental objective of the foreign policy of Her Majesty's government to support and strengthen the United Nations and to seek its development into a, quote, world federation open to all nations and defined and limited powers adequate to preserve peace and prevent aggression throughout the enactment, interpretation and enforcement of world law. Well, that was pretty good, but they went on here. During the debate, it was recorded that Lord Birdwood said, we're a long way from the day when an Englishman will accept a law framed in Europe on British soil. And yet it is in this more deliberate approach that I see the seeds of eventual success in facing the citizen of the world with the blueprint of a plan, in letting him understand its implications and having its acceptance by common consent with no risk whatsoever of all of us waking up one day to discover that we are subject to an international dispensation which we had neither sanctioned nor understood, seeding the idea of the world government plan into our heads. And then it says here, one world order denialists should note that within the House of Lords debate, Lord Silkin also stated, some of us who are members of the world government movement, as I have been ever since its inception, believe that all this can be achieved through the machinery of the United Nations organization. So we'll let people think about that. Uh, but at the end of the day, we've got a very small group of people uh, meeting in G7. They believe that they have sufficient power to enforce effectively vaccination on the world's population, never mind how many people die or who are maimed as a result of that. And as they say in their own world's words, we will use our presidency to agree an ambitious shared agenda based on our shared values for international action to build back better for all our people. Yes, but our people doesn't mean the general population. <laughs> Indeed, it doesn't, no. So this is a group of elitists protected by the police and the military deciding what they're going to do with people in the world complete with their bodies. What are they going to do? Well, perhaps they're going to have vaccines enforced. And I'd just like to remind viewers and listeners that, of course, none of this could happen if we hadn't got the power base there, uh, sorry, if we hadn't got the financial power base there within the G7 meeting. If you haven't gone to their website to have a look at the detail of what the financial bigwigs are talking about, uh, recommend that you go and look at this. Because, of course, at the end of the day, the people pulling the financial strings will be controlling the debate of the politicians. Mm. OK, let's uh, come back to the UK alone here, although we are leading the way on this uh, and Ofcom uh, and the issue of online safety. Uh, so they have now today published their online nation 2021 report. Uh, here it is. Uh, this is an annual report that looks at what people are doing online, how they're served by online content providers and platforms, and their attitudes to and experiences of using the internet. Now, most of the, if not all of the mainstream coverage of this 
uh, was just basically listing statistics. For example, that 86% of adults in the UK are now using the internet and they're using it for an average of three hours and 37 minutes each day and that this is uh, the largest or the, the longest period of any European country uh, and that uh, they're spending an average of one hour, 21 minutes a day watching online video services, uh, including uh, social media video services. Um, but uh, while, as I say, most of the news reports are focused on these kinds of stats, I think we need to look at the broader context because this uh, report is only one of several uh, because it's part of the Making Sense of Media initiative from Ofcom. This is a program uh, of work, as they describe it, to help improve the online media literacy of UK adults and children. So here we are right back into this issue of online safety uh, because one of the key tenets of the uh, Online Harms white paper was that uh, one of the problems with people is that they're not literate with respect to media consumption uh, in on the online world and that they need to be uh, because otherwise, how do they identify what's disinformation? So uh, Ofcom says, reminds us that they have a statutory duty to promote media literacy as a result of the online safety bill, which hasn't become an act yet. Uh, understanding on people's online habits, behaviors, and attitudes is a vital part of these statutory duties. And this evidence helps them and others to identify trends and spot emerging issues. There are many ways, they say, to understand and measure online behavior, each with their strengths and weaknesses. And so they've commissioned three reports, which they published today, uh, which collectively address these issues and provide new insights into online behavior. And they offer a contribution to debates around how to collect and synthesize data, how to understand habits and perceptions about misinformation, and what might be the most effective in countering misinformation. So let's just have a look at this. Uh, this is the first one. It's from an organization called Faculty, and it's called Automated Approaches to Measuring Online Experiences. And uh, they say that Ofcom commissioned faculty, a specialist data science and artificial intelligence firm to carry out a feasibility study to assess the range of automated online tools and methodologies that measure online experiences. Uh, there is strong feasibility for using online tools and data capture and analysis methodologies to research online experience as a scale. So what they're talking about here is mass data collection about people's online habits, about what they're browsing, what they're looking at. One of the statistics that the newspapers were very excited this morning about was, was the amount of porn that people are watching online during lockdown. Uh, but this is taking this level of data gathering and snooping on people's activities to a new level. Such tooling, they say, can significantly improve the scale of data collection for research and can allow the analysis of a wide range of online experiences very rapidly compared with classical social research techniques alone. So they're gonna model what we're doing as well as gathering all this data. That's the first report. The second report that Ofcom has published is called Misinformation, a Qualitative Exploration. Uh, this study focus on the, it focuses on the opinions of those who define themselves as questioners or rejectors of mainstream media sources or, and are open to or curious about non-mainstream alternative sources. Now, actually, in some of the documentation on this, they use the term identify as. Uh, and so it's become a form of identity politics now to be a questioner of a mainstream narrative or to be questioning the government at all. Uh, it goes on to say it explores how they interact with news of information, their, their perceptions of inverted commas truth and inverted commas misinformation, and their opinions about some hypothetical interventions designed to combat types 
of misinformation. So they're basically trying to gather information on what would be the best ways to combat uh, information or the most acceptable ways to combat misinformation amongst those who consider themselves skeptical about mainstream narratives. It goes on to say, uh, sorry, that's a dupl duplication. It goes on. So then we, let's have a look at the third one here. Uh, this says, this, this is from the London School of Economics. It's called uh, Rapid Evidence Assessment on Online Misinformation and Media Literacy. Uh, this review by LSE Consulting, led by Professor Lee Edwards, summarizes recent evidence largely from academic research literature on work being done in the field of media literacy to address misinformation. This is what this is all about. It analyzes 201 papers following an initial sift of thousands. The whole online safety thing is about misinformation, what the government considers misinformation. And of course, the more correct de uh, definition of that would be any information which is, uh, exposes the government narrative for what it is. Or exposes or, or even challenges. You might not get as far as being able to expose it, but right. you challenge it and you're still falling into the trap of these people. Uh, indeed. So uh, research shows that three specific types of media literary skills, particularly critical thinking, which may involve asking questions where information comes from, or using information to construct evidence-based arguments, uh, evaluation strategies, including a reflective approach to one's own status as an audience member, and knowledge of operation of news and media industries have consistently been found to have positive effects on the ability to critically engage with the misinformation. So this is, uh, this is what is driving them at the moment with re respect to online safety. Uh, it is absolutely misinformation and so-called disinformation uh, and the fact that the UK government wants to maintain a single narrative. And as you will know, if you've been watching the UK column for some time, at a previous G7 meeting in 2018, Theresa May convinced the other G7 leaders that we might want to have a common narrative at a G7 level as well and make sure that that is propagated across all uh, the major economies of the world. So if anybody is surprised that the, uh, the media narrative is the same in the United States, in Japan, in Canada, in uh, Europe, uh, it shouldn't come as a surprise because they've all signed up to this principle decide what the narrative is and spread it as far and wide as possible. It doesn't matter what the truth is. Uh, this is about narratives. And so if there's anybody generating misinformation, it is governments. Um, sorry. I just wanted to bring in, Mike, that uh, on the paper that you had just had on the screen, you've got the names of the authors, final report. Can't read them all from here, but it starts off with Professor Lee Edwards. And we'd just suggest to our viewers and listeners that if you go and research the names of these professors, you'll find email addresses for them at London School of Economics. And of course, you can email them and challenge them on the views which they're pushing out as if they've got a privileged position in society. Of course, they haven't been elected. They've simply been appointed to do this job and paid. So probably they're going to produce the message that the government wants in the first place. But if you get their email address or e even their telephone number, get in contact with them, challenge them, ask them what they're doing, um, ask them what happens when there is only government propaganda and no other alternative media. Uh, now, the BBC Today programme this morning was covering this and they were very much uh, pushing the issue of child safety in particular. Um, and of course, these documents and the Ofcom uh, report are all there to inform the online safety bill, which is going to be introduced to Parliament very, very soon. Um, now, we asked on Monday, uh, Monday's programme 
if yeah. anybody uh, is interested in this area could get in touch with us because we'd like to work with a few other people to, to get to the bottom of this bill and the implications of it, plus uh, everything that we've just presented. Uh, now, a couple of people have been in touch, and thank you very much for that. I've seen your emails, and I will be back in touch with you uh, probably in the morning. But in the meantime, if anybody else would like to get involved in that project, then please do let us know. Now, in a slightly related uh, area, uh, of course, we have uh, looked at the government's censorship network uh, on a number of occasions on this program, uh, and we're highlighting the connections between or the the close ties or the, the fusion, we may say, between the National Security Council and the various intelligence agencies and the Cabinet Office and all the uh, it, institutions that the Cabinet Office has set up uh, or enabled to uh, censor and snoop uh, on narratives that are being distributed across the internet. And the one that I want to highlight here is the uh, Freedom of Information Clearinghouse at the end. Now, of course, uh, we can look at who's behind this uh, well, we've got Simon Case, who, of course, is uh, uh, Cabinet Secretary, uh, but also uh, Snoop looking over his shoulder. Uh, you can see there Michael Gove, um, who is uh, the Cabinet uh, Minister. So why are we putting this on screen? Well, this is actually a bit of good news here because uh, Open Democracy uh, took the government to court and the Cabinet Office in particular to court over uh, the Freedom of Information Clearinghouse. Now, if you remember, this is the department within the Cabinet Office which uh, is there to uh, effectively, if, if anybody on a particular list uh, makes a freedom of information request to any government agency or government department, uh, if they're on that list and they've uh, created that uh, freedom of information request, that request then goes to the clearinghouse and it gets answered centrally by the cabinet office. Uh, Open Democracy took the government to court over this. It's taken them three years. Uh, and yesterday, the judge, Chris Hughes, found that the documents uh, in the cabinet office presented to court about the unit were misleading. Uh, he said that there was a profound lack of trans transparency about its operation, uh, which may extend to ministers. Uh, and so he found uh, for the for open democracy in their favor. Uh, he criticized the cabinet office for a uh, lacuna in public information about how the clearinghouse coordinates freedom of information requests referred to it by government departments and agencies. Uh, and uh, so just one example, the cabinet office had offered to the court an out-of-date Wikipedia entry as evidence that information about the clearinghouse, which circulates lists of journalists, as I said, across Whitehall, uh, was available to the public. Um, so that was the basis of it. Uh, and so they've been forced now to uh, give open democracy the access to, to proper documents about this uh, organization, which they have not yet done, but we will keep an eye on that to see if they do. Mike, Mike when the uh, lovely David Cameron was in power, uh, we actually had a minister for transparency, if I remember correctly, that was Francis Maud. Um, I don't know whether we still have a minister for transparency. We'll be able to do a bit of research to find that out, but it would be very interesting to know. Uh, and who that individual is. But of course, at the time that Francis Maud was the Minister for Transparency, there were all sorts of little private meetings going on, attended by common purpose, uh, for which the minutes were subtly altered so that discussions that had taken place um, revealed to the public were not quite the discussions which had actually taken place. Mm. So it seems that the lack of transparency continues. 
Um, well, but of course, this is mainly about uh, shutting down, again, any counter narratives, because, of course, if you can't get the information yeah. that you're asking for or the information is somehow spun by a central government organization, in this case, the Cabinet Office, then it's very, very difficult to be able to uh, identify uh, the truth uh, in, sto in stories that the government is producing. So um, anyway, let's move on. If you like what the UK Column does and you'd like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. Uh, and also uh, on the platforms that, we're still, that are still available to us, if you see any of our material, please feel free to share it. And uh, just like to say that uh, we're almost still encouraging people um, who are watching UK column for free to come on board and support us as a, as a uh, full member subscriber. Um, we welcome you to do that. And I'd also like to say to the very generous people who say they're already um, helping to finance UK column, they are prepared to give more. And our reaction to that is that at the end of the day, the generous people are doing extremely well. What we would like to see is more people coming along and paying that basic three pounds a month effectively. So if you're not doing that at the moment, you value what we're doing. Um, we are gonna need this financial backing in order to survive when this censorship really starts mm -hmm. to bite. So all sorts of things that we're considering at the moment, but the biggest one of course is to expand in face of this censorship attack by the government. And that is gonna require further financial support, but we would rather see that coming as a little bit from a lot of people than one or two very generous people. So I'll let you think about that. Now, a little bit of sad news. Several people e emailed in to say that this lady has unfortunately died as a result of cancer, Rosie Core, if I pronounce that correctly. And uh, she put out a tweet on her own Twitter um, page a little while, well, it was May the 22nd. It said, please pray for me, my friends, even though this hard fight we're in, this struggle to direct our lives in a natural, dignified human way, we need to keep our love glowing. Thank you for caring. I'll feel your prayers. So I just wanted to bring that up, a little bit of a poignant thing. And of course, she'd written the book Behind the Green Mask, which was an expose of the globalist agenda around UN Agenda 21. And uh, these are all key things which are now being rolled out through the G7 talks. And every time, of course, you hear the Bank of England talking about the green agenda, uh, the bank is talking about this very um, agenda which this lady uh, was bravely trying to expose. Uh, now, we've also had an email in about the NHS, which was quite interesting. Uh, a person said, I'd worked, I've worked in the NHS in an acute trust hospital for 16 years, and it's been the quietest two winter season that I've known. It appears busy because of staff shortages. That's very interesting because we've heard a lot about this. The uh, NHS has got a lot of people off sick. Um, it appears busy because of staff shortages and the fanfare complying with the nonsense. I believe they're talking around the COVID pandemic. I run an acute rapid diagnosis service, normally 30 to 40, excuse me, normally 30 to 40 referrals a week. At the height of the nonsense, this went to five a week. This has never fully recovered as people are not wanting to bother their GPs. So that was interesting comment. And this email was particularly interesting because it was a heads up 
um, that the um, grab for our NHS data has now been delayed. According to Big Brother Watch here on screen, the collection will now take place on September the 1st, 2021. Well, so, or it will begin on that date at least because I don't think it's ever going to end. Uh, okay. Um, so uh, maybe a glimmer of hope here, but Mike, you quickly said, well, we need to have a look at what the NHS is saying on its own website. So, and and yeah. you were fascinated by the um, framing of this oh, discussion. This, this is appalling, actually. So this is the NHS's page on this. Uh, General Practice Data for Planning and Research, NHS, NHS Digital's daily collection of GP data will support vital health and care planning and research. So what they're intending to do is to gather everybody's data from their GP surgeries and make it available to all kinds of third-party companies. Uh, now, there is an opt-out, which we'll come on to in a second, but here's the key point. Look at what's in the brackets in the title. It, the, the acronym for General Practice Data for Planning and Research is GPDPR. This is deliberately chosen, in my view, to, to uh, appear to be similar to GDPR, which, of course, everybody recognizes as the EU legislation, which is there to protect people's data and privacy. So what we have here is a really pretty disingenuous attempt to imply that what's going on uh, with this uh, sharing of data by GPs to third-party companies is somehow protecting your data by using an acronym, an acronym which sounds similar to uh, a piece of legislation at EU level, which is there to protect your data. It's, this is applied psychology. Totally, yes, absolutely. So, well, the next part of, of this uh, page from the NHS gives you the uh, opt out, opting out of NHS digital collecting uh, your data and the national data opt out. And it says uh, at, the, at the top of the uh, first paragraph, well, sorry, at the centre of the first paragraph, this collection will start on the 1st of September. Right. So the important thing here is that there are two opt outs required. You've, there's a digital opt out for NHS digital and there's a paper opt out. You're going to print out a PDF form, fill it in and give it to your GP. Uh, if you can get it through your GP's door, good luck. But anyway, that's what you need to do in order to opt out. It's a two-step process. Right. Now, several people also sent me this video clip for sale, your NHS data. And it's very interesting because it's this gentleman who calls himself the Black Belt Barrister uh, talking about this data collection and warning about it. Um, however, what he doesn't say is that, of course, under the emergency coronavirus rules, the NHS could do what it liked with the data. That's something you've pointed out, Mike. But in the first place, I wanted to say, can we give this gentleman some encouragement? Can we get him delving deeper and using his skills as a barrister as to what's going on here? Because we have been quite tough on the legal profession over, over quite some time, and we really need these people to step out and start to ask questions, which this chap appears to be doing. So we're going to say, well done in the first instance, but you need to do some more research onto what's really, uh, as to what's really happening. Uh, now, this one seems to be a little bit of good news as well. Pulse is reporting that uh, doctors are threatened legal action to halt the unlawful mass GP data extraction. I've put a caption in here, rebellion or hot air because of course at the moment the GPs have been very reluctant to challenge anything the government does because they don't want to upset their fat pay packets. 
but perhaps, just perhaps, we've now got GPs starting to smell the danger of what's happening with the massive reorganization of the NHS. Um, okay, now uh, back in March, uh, May, sorry, in the middle of May or so, we uh, were highlighting the hospital daily occupancy situation and making the point that hospitals are pretty much full. Uh, so a couple of graphs here showing uh, that hospitals right across England uh, pretty much full. Um, and uh, well, finally, I'm glad to say the Daily Mail has caught up uh, because uh, we've got a headline today. Uh, dozens of hospitals hit dangerous bed occupancy levels and in efforts to tackle the COVID backlog, as in NHS bosses warn any spike in coronavirus patients could scupper efforts to tackle record waiting lists of 4.9 million. So uh, in the process of admitting uh, that the situation exists, uh, the Daily Mail, of course, uh, maintains the fear narrative by suggesting that uh, you know the slightest uptick in the number of uh, so-called coronavirus cases uh, could scupper efforts to tackle this waiting list. Now, this 4.9 million people that are waiting for NHS treatment, of course, this isn't something that's happened overnight. It hasn't even happened over the past 12 months. It's been building up for a lot longer than that. It, just the, the fact that the last 12, 14 months has uh, made the situation organ, orders of magnitude worse. Now, uh, the uh, email that we that Brian just read out, the person was saying that people don't want to bother their GPs. Uh, and uh, of course, we're also seeing this massive waiting list. Uh, so people sitting in their homes waiting to die. So here's the latest graph from the, from the Office for National Statistics on excess mortality in the UK. And you can see, uh, but remind you once again, that in the summer months last year, uh, there was uh, significantly below average mortality. Uh, last year. Uh, and in the summer months this year, Brian, there's below average mortality. Uh, but of course, that's all because of the vaccines this year. It wasn't last year because there were no vaccines, but this year. Sarcasm. Yes. Yes. Uh, and uh, uh, same with care homes, we've got uh, uh, below average mortality. Um, now, there's a caveat on that, which I'll mention in one second. Uh, but if you look at home, uh, the people that are dying in their own homes, there is still well above average mort mortality, their excess mortality, people dying in their own homes. That happened all the way through the summer months last year. It's happening through the summer months this year. Uh, and this is because people are not getting the medical treatment that they need from the NHS. Uh, and in fact, we could go as far as to say that the NHS has utterly failed these people uh, as the managers of the NHS. And I'm not blaming individual doctors or nurses by any means because they are doing their best in very trying circumstances, but the management of the NHS, having reoriented the NHS to one particular problem, has ignored uh, everybody else. Uh, and as a result, we're seeing the result. Well, we're seeing the results. We're seeing the chaos. Um, well, let's have a look at uh, this one, which is uh, The Guardian uh, commenting on NHS trusts hiring non-nurses for nursing roles. The Royal College of Nursing says recruiting people without the right qualification puts patients at risk. Well, I would have thought that was a statement of the obvious, but it's apparently not that uh, straightforward. So what's been going on here? Let's look at some of the comments in this article. One trust advertised for a matron, a managerial role usually filled by a senior nurse to work in acute medicine, but said that a qualification in, in nursing was not necessary. That's a good one. We need some airline pilots, but you don't need to be trained to fly. 
this one here, another trust recently sought to recruit a matron who would be responsible for older people's mental health and learning disability services. It said the post was open to a registered professional clinician with demonstrable evidence working at senior level. However, it did not specify that the successful applicant had to be registered with the Nursing and Midwifery Council, which regulates both professions, clearing the way for non-nurses to apply. And we'll give you another one just to ram home what's happening here. Gloucestershire Health and Care NHS Trust invited applications for a nursing role in a psychiatric intensive care unit dealing with people with, quote, serious mental health problems. However, it stressed that the recruit could be a staff nurse, nursing associate, a new role being expanded to help plug the shortfall of registered nurses, or it could be a healthcare assistant. Now, this is obviously breakdown of the system, and we've been hearing over a number of months that there's also been a massive increase in the number of um, asylum seekers and recent immigrants who are being fast-tracked into service with the NHS. And our stance on this is very clear, that of course those people are being used for a political purpose, which is to help accelerate the breakdown of the NHS. But against that background, that uh, people who aren't qualified are being put in charge of people who are seriously uh, ill, sick within the NHS, um, let's bring up Ruth May, who's the Chief Nursing Officer for England. And in the article that we've just shown on screen, this is what she said. Patient care has always been delivered by teams of professionals working together. And with the emergence of more integrated roles, we expect providers to examine the expertise and skill required from a range of professional backgrounds, which ultimately is better for patients. But the irony is here that, of course, what the article was warning about was the fact that these are not professionals because they're not properly qualified for the job. So we thought we'd have a little look into the way that Ruth May thinks as the chief nursing officer uh, for England. And we came across this very interesting little video. Hello, my name is Ruth. I'm the chief nursing officer for England. 2020 is the year of the nurse and midwife. And I'm delighted to have the opportunity to talk about my priorities. I've got three priorities. Our people, pride and celebration of our professions, and Team CNO. And I want to just concentrate on that last one for a moment. Team CNO for me is about how we speak with one professional voice our shared leadership, our collective leadership, how we come together to celebrate what we do, to ensure people understand the depth and the breadth of what we do across all sorts of sectors, across health and social care, and about how we promote our nursing and midwifery excellence. For me, collective voice, shared leadership, is how we all come together to influence, debate, and to focus on what we want to change. No matter what band you are, Shared leadership for me is getting rid of the hierarchy. It's about coming together as a group of professionals from whatever sector, whatever band, debating what's right, debating what we should be doing to change, that transformational change, making the difference for our patients and, our, and their families. So there are three parts of the Shared Governance Collective Leadership Programme. The first is around local accreditation. 
Now, I remember when Elaine Ingleby-Burke, the chief nurse for Salford, first started to introduce ward accreditation. And we've seen that now spread across much of England. And so this local accreditation for me is about how we really embed improvements in the nursing and midwifery care that we're giving to our patients and their families. Then, of course, we've got the shared governance, the shared governance councils. And I guess Nottingham have been doing this for the longest. I was only there a couple of weeks ago, listening about the real impact, the real transformational change that colleagues are doing the, with their patients, with the care that they're providing, the, the opportunities that they're giving their staff. Fantastic to see shared decision-making councils in practice. So nursing and midwifery excellence is really key, uh, third part of that whole programme. So for me, this all links in really well to my vision as Chief Nursing Officer for England. Really powerful stuff about how we uh, transform care for our patients and our communities, how we lead through transformational change, and how we really celebrate and have pride in our profession. Thank you. Well, I believe that a few of our audience are stunned after watching and listening to that little clip, because what was that lady really talking about? Now, I think that uh, possibly she, she's, got, she's got a hearing difficulty and we're commenting through that. So if she's got a hearing difficulty and she's got into that position, well done. But there's something not right with what she's saying, because she's not talking about the facts of what's happening on the ground. She's living in this false reality, this false transformational reality. Uh, she says that workforce comes first. Well, clearly it doesn't because we haven't got enough nurses on the job because so many of them are overworked, stressed and off sick. And now we're bringing in people who are not professionals, even though she says we're going to celebrate uh, the professional nature of our workforce. Uh, but the most frightening thing is the fact that she's talking about one collective voice. If you come into the NHS, presumably you're going to be a drone. You will only do what you're told. You will not complain. And you certainly won't blow the whistle when you start to see patients being damaged by the transformational change policy. Mm. So we've got quite a few people at the moment commenting and saying that this lady has been heavily NLP'd. She's been reframed. She can't think about the reality of the world She's in some spaced out uh, transformational change in the future mindset. And of course, this is the very mindset which is doing the damage inside the NHS. Now, we're going to say UK Column has done a huge amount of work about this subject over the years. Uh, we've put up this article many times. We're going to do it again. If you haven't read it, go onto the UK Column website, search for Towards a Million Change Agents by a gentleman called Martin Edwards. A very detailed article. Um, I'll just give you a little bit of it for a flavour, but he starts off by saying philosopher Robert Roland Smith said that for change to work, the discontent with the present must be greater than the tolerance of it. And he then asks, or the author of the article asks, isn't this the perception we are being fed about the state of parts of our NHS? Might this not suggest that it's being deliberately sabotaged from within? And we certainly agree with that. Uh, the most damaging failings were illustrated following the uh, three-month, sorry, the 31-month public inquiry into unnecessary deaths at the Mid Staffordshire NHS Trust between 2005 
And when presenting his findings, Robert Francis QC told the audience, this is a story of appalling and unnecessary suffering of hundreds of people. Actually, it was tens of thousands of people. They were failed by a system which ignored the safe, the warning signs and put corporate self-interest and cost control ahead of patients and their safety. And the report contained 290 recommendations for change across the whole of the NHS. Francis claimed that there was a lack of care, compassion, humanity, and that the most basic standards of care and fundamental rights to patient dignity had not been respected. He also claimed that there was a lack of leadership. Well, we've just given an example of what the sort of leadership is, and the result is people who've died and suffered within the NHS. But UK column going back to 2013 was also, uh, was also warning in a more general sense about how common purpose was being used to drive uh, behavioural change. And this article by um, uh, Kate Merritt uh, says, do we know right from wrong or do we need to have our brains reframed to a common belief system of change? And that's, of course, exactly what the chief nursing officer was talking about when she was talking about one collective voice. And if we go on to this one back in 2011, uh, entitled Exploring Euthanasia, the Government Destruction of the NHS, uh, this is a very um, short but sharp article looking at what was happening inside the NHS, how it was being taken apart, how various hospitals were evidence of the destruction of the NHS. Uh, but the article goes on through um, to, uh, sorry, let's, where are we now? Um, we've, we've got a particular barrister here um, talking about the current BMA guidelines. In fact, the guidelines do not refer only to patients who are dying. It may also refer to a serious long-term chronic state. And what they're getting into here is while it starts out talking about removing operations for people, he was warning that we were looking at actually taking life support away from people. We're talking about withdrawing food and fluids. And because in the very narrow circumstances of the persistent vegetative state, that has been redefined as treatment. So this is a very powerful article. Encourage you to have a look. And it ends by saying that if we look at what's happening in UK, uh, we get an uneasy feeling that we're watching exactly what happened during Nazi Germany or the rise of Nazi Germany in the 1930s uh, when people were being euthanized because the state didn't think they were capable of adding anything to uh, society in Germany. Mm. So courage, uh, encourage people to go to the UK Column website and have a read of those articles. Now, uh, since May last year, we've been uh, really highlighting the fact that what's been going on in this country is a massive psychological attack by the government uh, using fear. Uh, this We showed the minutes from the uh, SPY-B uh, subcommittee of SAGE, uh, which explained how they were going to use that fear uh, to drive narratives. Well, I received an email from uh, somebody, and thank you very much for this uh, this morning, um, and uh, the email pointed out that cult expert Stephen Hassan developed the BITE model to describe a specific, the specific methods that cults use to recruit and maintain control over people. BITE stands for behavior, information, thought, and emotional control. Destructive mind control can be determined uh, when the overall effect of these four components promotes dependency and obedience to some leader or cause. And I thought this was a very insightful 
I just thought it would be worthwhile running through. So it goes on to say, of course, cults and cult-like behavior is not restricted to religious settings. Attempts at psychological manipulation have been used extensively by various authority structures throughout history to control the masses. Below is a sample of common tactics used by cult leaders. So let's have a look at Byte then and start off with behavior. And some of the things that are listed include uh, regulate individuals' physical reality. Well, that's been done through lockdown. Uh, dictate members' associations, also through lockdown. Financial manipulation or dependence, also through lockdown and the furlough scheme in particular. Restrict leisure, entertainment, vacation time, also through lockdown. Uh, major time spent with group indoctrination. Well, we've just been bombarded with group indoctrination through the BBC and other mainstream media sources. Self-indoctrination, including the internet. For, well, for many people, that has been the case. Uh, permission required for major decisions, absolutely. Uh, rewards and punishments used to modify behavior. Lockdown. Are um, we going to have lockdown? Are we going to come out of lockdown? Are you going to be allowed to travel? Are you not allowed to travel? Can fines. You, fines as well. Yeah. Uh, discourage individualism. Do it for your neighbors. Do it for your friends. Encourage groupthink. <clears throat> Impose rigid rules and regulations. Instill dependency and obedience and separation of families. This is the first. This is the B of bite. This is all about behavior. This is about how you run a cult. Uh, information. Deliberately withhold information, distort information to make it more acceptable, systematically lie to the cult member. Has this been going on in the last 14 months? I think it absolutely on has. A daily basis, Mike. Minimize or discourage access to non-cult sources of information. I think we've covered that with Ofcom today and the online safety bill. Uh, compartmentalize information to, into outsider versus insider doctrines. Ensure information is not freely accessible. Control information at different different levels and missions within the groups. Uh, control, uh, sorry, allow only leadership to decide who needs to know what and when. Extensive use of cult-generated information and propaganda, misquoting statements or using them out of context from non-cult sources. Uh, then we come on to thought. Require members to internalize the group's in, uh, doctrine as truth, uh, adopting the group's map of reality as reality instilling black and white thinking, decide between good and evil, most importantly, organize people into us versus them, the vaccinated versus the unvaccinated, for example. Uh, use, use of loaded language and cliches which constrict knowledge, stop critical thoughts, rejection of rational analysis, critical thinking, constructive criticism, forbid critical questions about leader, doctrine, or policy, uh, labeling alternative belief systems as illegitimate, evil, or useful or not useful, and instill this new map of reality again. And finally, emotional, manipulate and narrow the range of feelings so that some emotions and or needs are deemed as evil, wrong or selfish. Make the person feel that problems are never the leader's or the group's fault. Promote feelings of guilt or unworthiness and then encourage social guilt uh, and particularly with respect to how others view you. And I read that this morning, Brian, and I just thought that fits so well with uh, what we have experienced over the last 14 months um, that uh, I thought others should, uh, should see it and consider it for themselves. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Okay, well, um, the BBC, of course, master of uh, helping all of that uh, mind control, um, is now pushing out this, uh, furloughed part-timers clinging on to disappearing jobs. So the basic headline is correct, but of course this is more depressing news that the BBC is giving people. 
Um, and they've used, of course, an agency to comment. So we've now got an organization called TimeWise um, that's been talking about redundancy. The consultancy is warning that the UK's 7.8 million part-time workers, most of whom are women, will bear the brunt of job losses when the furlough scheme ends in September. A study commissioned by TimeWise found that half of all part-time workers have been furloughed at one point during the pandemic, compared to a third of full-time employees. Meanwhile, part-time employment has fallen at its fastest rate in at least 30 years during the crisis, with the share of women working part-time at its lowest since record began. And of course, many women have to work because it's their income that allow the family to function. So if their money doesn't come in very often, there's not enough coming in uh, with the husband working and that family is going to uh, fall into dire straits. So this isn't just a part-time job. These are the jobs that actually keep many families in existence, but the BBC doesn't want to talk about that aspect. Um, now, there was some comment from the Department for Business, um, of course, in line with the fact that a cult is running. Uh, nobody was uh, brave enough to own up to who had actually said this, apart from the Department for Business. But the government was wholeheartedly committed to protecting and enhancing workers' rights, Mike. So don't worry, you haven't got a job, you're not going to have a job, many more people are not going to have a job. The government is wholeheartedly committed to protecting and enhancing workers' rights. The department also said that it had set up the Flexible Working Task Force to properly understand the changes in ways of working that are emerging as a result of the pandemic. So the way the change is happening, I would suggest, is that people don't have jobs, um, but they need to set up a flexible working task force to understand that people don't have jobs and they certainly don't have part-time jobs. Uh, they also said they're taking forward plans to consult on making flexible work the default unless employers have good reasons not to. So this is major change of the way that people work. Um, so if you're a company that's very difficult to have your employees remotely working, you're going to go out of business. Uh, but if you're Amazon and, and one of the flavor of the month companies, you're going to be able to rake in billions of pounds. And uh, the BBC wants to really um, round down the, uh, well, tighten up the screw now, because uh, here we are with a particularly unpleasant article focused on an organization which goes out offering free hugs. Um, but what the BBC is doing in this article is seeding the idea that hugging friends and family is absolutely not okay. And well, hugging anybody who's a stranger, I've used the word forbidden, is forbidden. Um, but this is, this is almost out of the Nazi party and the BBC loves it. So sooner we get rid of the BBC, um, we make it completely flexible, Mike. It disappears. Yes, that's a very good idea. Okay, well, we're, we're finished early today, but uh, we're going to end with this one. Uh, this uh, card apparently was seen in one of the, uh, on one of the more popular uh, greetings cards websites, uh, and I just thought everybody would like to see it. Uh, the, we've got three people around a cake, a birthday cake there, and the caption is, uh, pretty wild how we used to eat cake after someone had blown on it. Good times, eh? <laughs> Absolutely. 
Well, we will end there. We're going to say thank you to everybody for joining us. Uh, are we doing an extra? No, I should no. have asked that. You... No, I, we, we've, we're, we're dealing with the Vimeo situation. So hopefully everybody has managed to watch the program. I hope you enjoyed it. But I think we've still got uh, some work we need to do on that. So, yeah. so we can't do an extra today. We'll apologise for today, but we will we'll get back in the swing for that. So we're going to say thank you very much for joining us. A very big thank you to all of our overseas viewers. It's fascinating now to discover that there are people right across the world tuning into the UK column. I've said to several of those people via email that if you send us material about your country and what's happening there, we'll do our very best to get it included into the UK column. So we're based in UK, obviously, uh, but we are very interested in what's happening in other countries, particularly where you can see this uniform agenda expanding uh, across several countries at once. So this is a very important thing to talk about. If you've got information or images or documents or film clips, please send them through and we'll do our very best to reflect those back to the audience. Thanks very much. Uh, we will be back on Friday. Yes. Thanks for joining us. Bye-bye.